Welcome to Education Insight. I'm Lacey Kendall. Today we bring you a show that has little to do with classroom lessons, but everything to do with local student success. In the aftermath of the pandemic lockdowns, we now have more community college students of all ages living in cars, arriving hungry, in need of traditional and mental health services, and having notable transportation issues. They're often veterans or those who were hard hit during the lockdowns. In California, education leaders and legislators have become increasingly aware of this. So this year, they helped make federal, state, nonprofit, and private money become more readily available to Inland Empire Colleges to help these students stay healthy, stay safe, and keep learning. These services, often referred to as wraparound support, are now providing struggling community college students with food and housing, childcare, mental health, financial assistance, and transportation. Today, two top administrators responsible for establishing programs that get those services to students that most need them. Dr. Adrian Grayson is the Associate Dean of Educational Partnerships at Riverside City College, which now offers all of the services mentioned. She'll be joining us in just a few moments, but first we meet Rebecca Ron O'Shaughnessy. She's the Vice Chancellor of Educational Services and Support for the California Community Colleges Office in Sacramento. Rebecca, welcome to Education Insight. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great opportunity. I really appreciate it. First of all, could you explain your work as the Vice Chancellor for Educational Services and Support? Sure. My work creates the enabling conditions for colleges then to design their student service programs and deliver these services in a way that's equitable and that's student-centered. And that's an ecosystem approach for our students so we can empower their learning, strengthen their sense of unconditional belonging in our institutions, and also support their ultimate pursuit of economic and social mobility. The California Community College's website says, Rebecca, we provide support services to all of our students, including military veterans, undocumented immigrants, the disabled, the homeless, and current or former foster youth, end quote. Could you tell us in greater detail what kind of support services are offered throughout California to those groups and others? Yeah, um, I really love this question. So let me take a a zoom in, zoom out approach to answer this. So if I zoom in on the populations that you mentioned, right, military veterans, undocumented immigrant students with disabilities, homelessness and current and former foster youth, they are our special student populations uh, with their unique and complex challenges. So we have categorical programs with specific goals of serving these populations. So for example, we have annual allocations to support veteran, uh, veterans through our veterans resource centers. We have our dream resource liaison to really support our undocumented students. We have our disabled student programs and services. We have our homeless uh, and housing insecurity pilot in some colleges. And we have our 
Uh, next up program now is ready for system level implementation to support our current and former foster youth, right? These programs do have their specific program requirements based on the statutory and regulatory uh, requirements that are in, in, the, uh, in these authority, but they also provide much needed high touch interventions in summary for the populations. So, and then I'm gonna zoom out a little bit. And it's important to know that these programs I just mentioned are just a small portion of the resources they are available to support these students. I named these programs because they're designed with the student population in mind. But, you know, we all know humans are nuanced beings, right? So it's really critical to recognize the intersectionality associated with our identities, right? We're never defined by just one identity. So with that said, all the student service programs within our system, our Emoja program, for example, our Extended Opportunity Program and Services, EOPS, for example, all these programs should be leveraged and coordinated into an ecosystem to serve our students that I just mentioned, like those special populations mentioned above and beyond. And if you zoom out a little bit more, what you found on our website, right, it says we'll provide services to all of our students, including the special population then that really requires us to design our infrastructure of learning and support for, for all in an equitable way. So that means, you know, we have to design our classrooms and curriculum, our financial aid office, our health centers, our basic need center, all of them with equity in mind, really the, the practices to support the special populations and their unique needs. I think one of the first things that comes to anybody's mind when they begin thinking about these services is what has changed that made college students need these services that historically they did not? I would say that college students have always needed these services, right? Basic needs insecurity certainly has gotten worse with the rising economic inequality in our country. And then the pandemic further exacerbated the challenges for our students, right? Uh, I will say the biggest change I see is attention, investment, and momentum around supporting student basic needs, right? And to me, that's a combination of many things. Certainly the macro reasons I just mentioned earlier, which created the urgency, and also our system transitioning into the vision for success, getting very clear on what we need to move, right? And then also our unwavering commitment to equity and student voice. And I will say most importantly, the tireless and persistent student leadership and advocacy really demanding basic needs support for our students. So what effect are the new services having on student success in the state of California? If I may, I would like to introduce kind of additional concept in addition to kind of the uh, wraparound services, which is the social determinants of ed educational success. Okay. What we're saying here right, is that, you know, some of you actually may be familiar with the term social determinants of health that comes from a, a, a very uh, long history of evidence-based and research-based kind of uh, theory in public health. Similarly, what we're saying here is there are a range of social factors that directly influence educational risks and affect students' educational outcomes, right? So in the end, all these things significantly impact students' economic and social mobility, so what we're saying is not only we need to provide wraparound services, but we really need to wrap these services 
with the focus of financial stability, physical and mental well-being and support networks, because every student needs a fundamental level of these three things to be successful. And so because we're open access institution, right, we're committing to the success of 100% of our students, then our goal is to make sure these we have investment into these wraparound services or these services and support that further student uh, social determinants of educational success and then really explicitly tie the services and support to vision for success uh, goals for our students. Yeah. With this job of reporting on education in the inland part of Southern California, uh, I talked to a lot of educators and of late have heard a lot of discussion in our local region about these kinds of services in the Inland Empire and uh, specifically in the last few months. So has there been new policy or programs implemented at our California colleges relating to meeting students' basic needs? Is is that what is igniting this conversation that's happening now? Absolutely. I will say um, you're seeing a lot of changes in the past few months, but a lot of it is all the hard work prior to that, right? So really the system has received, so in the past two years, the system has received historic investment uh, to support students in their in advancing their academic uh, success and a big part of that is to address student basic needs, right? So mm-hmm. uh, we're seeing ongoing funding in addressing student basic needs, including basic needs centers, mental health support services. Um, there's also the one-time investment into supporting some colleges build affordable student housing, right, to address student homelessness and housing insecurity. And then our system also received emergency funds to support students recover from the pandemic, enroll and re-enroll in our institutions. And we have to make it, we have made it very clear in our guidance the importance of making the funding available to maximize student financial stability and the bias towards providing direct aid to students. Okay. Right. So we're seeing that. And at the same time, we're also seeing some structural changes. So when you think about the financial aid in Cal Grant, for example, the recent legislation changes have allowed more students eligible for Cal Grant which really support their financial stability. And then so we have our other categorical programs, as I mentioned earlier, they also have received additional investment to serve more students and serve them better. And even though they're not new, but the additional funding allowed us to serve more students and serve them better. Okay. Rebecca, what are the responsibilities of these new employees in California Community College campuses? And what kind of qualifications does someone in that kind of role actually need to arrive with? Ponder that for a moment, Rebecca, as we take a quick break. In the aftermath of the pandemic lockdowns, our community college students here in the Inland Empire are suffering with a number of life insecurities. So how much can it help our state and our region economically to assist them with services that make it possible to stay focused and graduate. More with Rebecca Ron O'Shaughnessy of the California Community Colleges Office in Sacramento coming up in just a moment. I'm Lacey Kendall, and this is Education Insight. 
Welcome back to Education Insight. A study last year by the University of Chicago showed that community college students are more likely to do better in school and ultimately graduate if they're provided new supports, such as food or childcare, transportation, and help with their mental health. For grade school kids, the research is hopeful, but inconclusive as of yet. So today, we're talking about the non-academic wraparound support our community colleges are now offering. Our guest is Rebecca Ron O'Shaughnessy. And before the break, I asked Rebecca, what are the responsibilities of these new employees in California community college campuses? And what kind of qualifications does someone in that kind of role actually need to arrive with? Sure. So... The requirements of basic needs center and basic needs coordinators come from AB 130. So in that statute, uh, clearly uh, mandates that the coordinator has to serve as a single point of contact for students experiencing basic needs insecurity and then connect them to basic needs services on campus and also outside of campus. Right. So they are acting as a broker or a triage nurse, right, to identify and support and connect students to the necessary services. And then in terms of qualifications, again, going back to kind of the legislation, the legislation also highlights experience such as, you know, providing services to high need and diverse populations. And I will add to it really uh, being equity minded in service delivery and service design, right? Continue the ability to continue to see patterns in student challenges so then they can highlight upstream policy and procedural solutions to remove structural barriers. At the chancellor's office, we want to make it clear what the requirements are. And then at the same time, we're providing support. So we also publish a basic needs toolkit uh, with sample job descriptions Mm. for the role. Mm -hmm. In our local community or region here, we have Chafee College, Crafton Hills College, and San Bernardino Valley College. You may not, but our listeners, when they think of community colleges, these are the places they think of. So let's talk about on on those campuses, but from your position in Sacramento, how do you believe faculty and staff in places like these three community colleges, how should they go about recommending students to local resources properly to be compassionate and helpful? Should we be recommending programs to students or students to programs? Does that make sense? Yes. No, it does make sense. So I will say there's really no proper way, right? The way is the way that works. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why it's important to think about all these resources as social determinants of educational success. Meaning if students don't have the resources that they need, it doesn't matter how great the faculty is. It doesn't matter how excellent the class is. It doesn't matter how world-class the facility is. The students are not going to be successful. Therefore, it's imperative for faculty and staff to recommend students to resources, right? So, but a big part of that is integration because faculty's main job is to teach, right? So they can't be expected to know all the resources out there to do the triage and to do all of that, right? So how do we, in my mind, get rid of that fiscal divide of the classroom walls, right? Thinking about this is my domain and this is what I do. And then, you know, inside the classroom and outside the classroom, different people feel like that's where they need to be. But how do we break down that silo to bring all the expertise to bear, right? So all of these recommendations and referral need to be happening in every interaction point with our students. And that means classroom and outside the classroom. So how does faculty bring in, right, this work with our support staff, work with our student services staff and others to bring them in 
um, bring their expertise or bring their presence into these interaction points to provide the appropriate uh, referral, I think is something that's that's critical. And then also the investment in technology, right, in online referral and triage tools is also going to be critical to make sure that we're not missing any opportunities to address these issues when we're interacting with our students. Mm. What would you say your office has learned so far now that the state's largest education system has started implementing these focused uh, new, in many cases, extra supports for our students? A few things, right? First is it takes a long time to implement something successful. Mm. And our system has gone through a lot of sense making in that, right? And we're still hearing comments back and say, we're in higher ed. We don't do this or we don't know how to do this. And why do we have to do this, right? And that is why this social determinants of educational success framework is so important to say, because this is not just a moral imperative. We're not helping just because it's the right thing to do. But also, it's critical to our enrollment retention and completion strategy because students will not be successful if they don't have the baseline level of services. And if we refuse to provide those services or if we don't do it effectively, then we are accepting the notion that some of our students will fail out of our system. And that's not acceptable. And so I think that type of sense making takes a long time. And then when we get into this and how do we traditionally, right, higher ed, traditionally does not think of themselves in this role. How do we build up sufficient infrastructure, not to provide end-to-end services, but provide what we can, and then also build those partnership with local organizations and systems that have been doing this for a long time. So that get into the second learning around partnership. Nobody can do this alone, right? So how do we really engage in meaningful partnership with the existing infrastructure that, that are already in place, you know, outside of our campus? How do we continue to advocate for our students and tell a different story of our students? We often say they're traditional students and non-traditional students, but most of our students are non-traditional students. Therefore, they're no non-traditional students. How do we tell our students' story to make sure that you know we are debunking a lot of those misconceptions about who we're serving? And we are serving the community members, right? All these systems are also serving. So there's a lot of alignment, but how do we really get into meaningful partnership? That's also the conversation. And then also no one size fits all, right? So that is also kind of uh, throwing a wrench in this, right? We can't just kind of mandate here are the three steps and it's a three uh, step success formula, right? A lot of the magic happens in the implementation. So colleges Um, are in the best position to leverage their local data to understand the unique challenges of their student population and then create uh, solutions in a way that that meet the uh, needs of our students. And then the last piece is really around data and research. And as I kind of talk about the shift from treating this as a moral imperative, a growth and survival imperative, how do we know that what we're doing is effective? It's important that students we're serving are are satisfied with our services, but do we know that we are serving all the students who are in need? Do we know that we're targeting the most of the students who are most in need? And do we know, in addition to uh, student satisfaction, uh, the services we're providing actually are improving student outcome and helping them staying enroll and and uh, complete our uh, with our institutions and transfer or go into the job market obtaining right, a social economic mobility at the end of the day. Those are all the questions we're wrestling with. Rebecca, my last question, uh, from where you sit there as Chancellor of Educational Services and Support 
in the California Community College's office in Sacramento and look out at the horizon of California Community Colleges. Do you believe that with the importance that this obviously holds to support students in these new ways, are they responding well? Are you satisfied with the work that our California Community Colleges are doing? Well, I'm extremely proud of the work we have done, right? We are pushing on new programs. We're designing programs in a new way. More importantly, we're shifting structures to change the underlying inequity so students don't have to uh, go through the messy experience to to receive the, the support that they need, the, the critical support that they need to engage and to be successful. But I think as every single learning institution, we have to engage in a continuous improvement process and using data and using student experience as the guidepost, right? We still have a long way to go to really make sure that our 1.8 million to 2.1 million students that we serve actually achieve economic and social mobility, right? We're not just in the higher education business. We're in the prosperity business. So what does that look like for our system? A lot of things will continue need to be shifted. Our roles need to be continued to shift. And how we view ourselves in relative to student life needs to shift, right? So we have a, a, even more ambitious goals to come. So I'm never going to be satisfied. I'm extremely proud, but <laughs> we're not stopping until every single one of our students um, achieve their uh, economic and social mobility. Rebecca Ron O'Shaughnessy, the Vice Chancellor of Educational Services and Support with the California Community College's office in Sacramento, joining us by phone today. Rebecca, thank you for your time today and for helping us to understand these new services much better. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're listening to Education Insight. As we've heard in our discussion today, California legislators are helping to get funding to community colleges throughout the state for new non-academic ancillary services that include things like transportation, childcare, help for homelessness, and food assistance. And as many of our local community colleges are launching these programs, Riverside City College has all of the services in place currently. Dr. Adrian Grayson is the Associate Dean of Educational Partnerships there and oversees much of this work. Dr. Grayson, welcome to Education Insight. Thank you for having me. So first of all, could you explain your responsibilities as the Associate Dean of Educational Partnerships at RCC? Yes, uh, this is a brand new position. Um, I started spring 2021. Um, I seem to do that a lot in my career where I start a a position that um, is brand new. And um, so I'm the first in this role. and, And it's awesome because I get to, you know, blaze a trail for a lot of groundbreaking programs and services. Um, the biggest part of my job, I would say, is the, our dual enrollment programs. Um, and so dual enrollment is when you offer college classes to high school students, and they're taught by college professors at the high schools or, um, in a lot of cases, online. And um, our largest program is the College and Career Access Pathways, so otherwise known as um, CCAP. And we have over 1,000 enrollments this semester, and we, and we continue to grow every semester. Um, another um, dual enrollment program that we offer is our Rubido Early College High School program, and that's at Rubido High School, and that we call that one Reaches. Um, I also oversee our partnerships with our three adult schools in our area, so Alvord, 
Hope and Riverside, a big shout out to our adult schools who are doing <laughs> phenomenal work. Um, and I also oversee a, uh, a brand new program called College Core. And uh, this is a grant program that's uh, across 45 colleges and universities in California. And we connect students to meaningful service opportunities. Um, so really, it's about getting students into their local community and, you know, volunteering with local organizations and community-based organizations and providing students um, a living wage in order to be able to do that and really hoping that it connects them to not only their community, but also their colleges and helps them fulfill their college dreams. Uh, another program is Rising Scholars, which uh, provides wraparound services to our system-impacted and carceral-impacted uh, students. Um, there's a few other things I'm working on, but... <laughs> Busy. The, the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we all are. But the common thread um, is that um, these programs are meeting students where they are at, mm-hmm. right? So, and then helping them get to where they want to be, right? So sometimes that means just exposing them to new things um, and to the possibilities of college. Um, but sometimes it also means physically going to them, right? So going to the high schools, going to the adult schools, even going to the juvenile halls um, and the parole meetings um, and just letting them know that there's people here at the college who care about them and want to see them succeed. Yeah. Dr. Grayson, so today we're talking about something you're quite familiar with that's a little bit new to a lot of people, even in education, this new propensity for colleges and universities to want to create programs that provide wraparound services. Now, what I know about that personally is that it generally means anything outside of the education portion of their experience at the college or university, but those ancillary things that are core of life that they need if they're going to do well at school, like eating and counseling and so many other things. I was wondering, since you're right there on the forefront, could you explain for me and for our listeners what you see as wraparound services? Yes, absolutely. I think you described it wonderfully. It it really has to do with recognizing the humanity of our students. And so really understanding that they are full human beings. They are not just numbers on a piece of paper. They are not just bodies in your classroom. They are human beings with lives and families and expectations and goals and hardships and they encounter barriers and so how can we as educators, what can the college do to remove as many of those barriers as possible as well as celebrate as many of those wins as possible so students know that they are fully seen and fully heard and that they can put their 100% effort into their academic goals, right? So when, so exactly, you know, some of the things that you mentioned, you know, access to counseling, access to resources, whether they be financial or meeting their basic needs, food, um, housing, things like that, but also connecting them to tutoring services on the campus and helping them find, you know, a group of individuals, like-minded individuals um, that they can fellowship with and, and build and create more opportunities for other students. How can they grow, not just in the classroom, but how can they grow as a full human being as well. So, so providing those wrap, wrap around services. When I think of wrap around services, I think of like a big hug, right? So how can I, um, how can I hug you and support you and lift you up in the ways that you specifically need? Because what I, 
um, am able to provide to one student or what, it, what one student may need may be different for another student. Who are the students that you see most needing these services? Yeah, um, there's a lot of different student groups. There's a lot of different programs out there that support various student groups. And I think uh, one of the commonalities is really um, our low-income and our first-generation students. And then we also have to disaggregate that and and really tease that out. Who are our low-income and who are our first-generation students? What do they look like? Um, You know, looking at the various uh, race and ethnicities, but also gender, um, but and also, for example, our current former foster youth. As I mentioned before, our current and formerly incarcerated students. Um, but it doesn't just have to be that. Every student needs wraparound support. Every student, but it may look differently um, depending on these different demographic areas that they may come from. Gotcha. You've done quite a bit of work with K through 12 schools as well to provide wraparound support to their students during their college preparation and application processes. So, Doctor, what impact did you see take place as a result of those efforts? Yes, so I worked with the Early Academic Outreach Program at the University of California, Irvine. Um, I worked there for uh, 18 years, if you count my work as an undergrad, right? So I started as a student worker, and then I worked my way all the way up to director of the program. and. This program specifically worked with um, low-income and first-generation students and their families. We served over 10,000 students um, in cities like Santa Ana, Anaheim, Long Beach, Compton, and um, we assisted students from the ninth grade all the way through the 12th grade with every aspect of applying for college. Uh, The goal really was to create a college-going culture. And um, I started in the late 90s. Money was flowing from the state. Um, and I was there when um, the budget literally got cut in half um, in the early 2000s. Um, I was also there when Prop 209 passed, and we had to um, adjust how we worked with students. We couldn't specifically target black and um, brown students at the time, even though those were the groups of students who needed the most supports in their pre- preparation for college. Um, and so I've seen how things have shifted in the state over the past 20 years and how we address the various inequities that um, students are facing. But back then, it was all about access, right? So I really think about it as like a, like a democratization of access, right? It's like, oh, how do we um, get students access to the university? How do we make them competitively eligible? That was the word we used a lot. Um, now you hear a lot about success, 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 right? Um, but at the time, we really were trying to get students to be college ready. Um, now you hear about colleges trying to be student ready, right? And, and student ready means, you know, embracing the students that you have instead of always coming from a deficit model talking about what they lacked, right? So, um, so our focus then was on educating students and families about how to succeed in college, right? So offering, you know, like financial literacy, college planning, um, A through G completion, focusing on SAT preparation. Um, and even back then, we were telling folks that, the SAT was a bias test. I mean, it was, it was obvious that it was a bias test. There was research that was shown that was a bias test, and still the universities were holding on to this idea that they had to use SAT as, um, as a component of admissions. Um, but SAT never predicted one's potential college success. So we, we would help students, though. We would help them with the test, and we'd help them prepare 
However, we really were trying to get the word out to the public and to the students that this, you know, uh, that we needed to advocate for the SAT to be removed from college admissions. And so 20 to 30 years later and a global pandemic later, they finally removed the SAT um, requirement from university admissions and, you know, the world didn't fall apart. You know, they're still getting very competitive students to apply and be admitted. Um, and um, similarly with the A through G course pattern, we were, you know, really advocating for all students to have access to A through G courses. That wasn't always the case. And then we did see, you know, how it evolved that school districts started um, adopting the A through G course pattern for their high school graduation requirements. And so that was a huge win as well. Um, but I think the true legacy of what we were doing was really the development and the uh, sustaining of P20 partnerships, the P20 meaning preschool all the way through college graduation. Uh Um, So having different institutions coming together for the benefit of the students, um, being completely student-centered, learning about the different systems and the college's lingo, right? Because everybody, the school districts had their own benchmarks and things that they needed to do and the colleges and universities had their own um, goals and things that they needed to do. So really coming to the table and and identifying what those common goals were, um, and then collaborating, truly collaborating to to meet those various needs. I think that was the true legacy of what we were doing. Yeah. How does the basic needs insecurity directly impact these students' ability to succeed in school? What happens when those needs start falling apart? Yes, I'm so glad that we are now having um, these conversations, and this really has come out of many of the um, equity efforts um, that have been coming down from the state for the, you know, for the past, I would say, 10 years or so. It's been moving, it's been evolving and moving very slowly, but it, the number, you know, people are starting, finally starting to look at the data, talk to students, ask them about their experiences, and what we have found has just been truly heartbreaking. Um, anywhere from 30 to 50% of our community college students may be experiencing food or and or housing insecurity at any given point in their college journey. And students are working so hard to stay on their academic path, even though they're facing so many different outside hardships. And so, you know, you have to ask, you know, how can you expect a student to be focused on their class assignments or to properly study for an exam? when they're worried about how they're going to feed themselves or, you know, feed their kids, you know, when they're having to make decisions about buying a $200 textbook, you know, versus paying their electricity bill, right? Or, um, you know, sometimes students come to the college and the meal that they get at the pantry, at the food pantry, is the only meal that they have for that day. Or even worse, you know, um, them having to sleep in their car in the college's parking lot overnight, right? So, and it's not just about these really hard decisions that students have to make about spending money, but it's also about just the basic physical needs of being human. So when you think about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So when you think about that pyramid, right, the foundation of that pyramid is our physiological needs, like uh, food, shelter, clothing, safety, right? Um, If you don't have that foundation, how are you ever going to reach the top of self-esteem and self-actualization? How can I ask a student to use their imagination and to dream big and to set 
short-term and long-term goals and to identify steps for achieving those goals, that type of executive you know, type thinking is not going to happen if they're worried about being hungry um, or where they're going to sleep that night. Um, and I, these students are resilient. I see them doing amazing things. They, you know, they, some of them get, you know, straight A's and, you know, a lot of times, sometimes you would never even know yeah. that these students are experiencing, you know, homelessness and houselessness. You would never even know um, because, you know, they come and maybe they take a shower in the, in the locker room at the college. Um, and, you know, they, a professor may see a student in class and may never know that that's what they're experiencing until they ask, right? Or, or until they, make an announcement maybe in the class that, hey, you know, we have a basic needs resource center um, and we, encur- you know, we're encouraging students to go to. And that student may have never heard of that before. So it's really important um, for everyone on the college campus to be aware of what the resources are um, at their college so that when, they're, when they do encounter students with these um, hardships that they can, you know, direct them where to go. I'm glad you brought up the basic needs resource centers that are all over in the Inland Empire in the schools. Now, what I'm hearing from folks in education, a K through 12 and post-secondary education is that this problem is a lot bigger than many people in our community, in our own community, are even aware of. So my question Mm -hmm. for you is, are the basic needs centers, are they actually having an impact on the academic outcomes of the students who participate? Before you answer that, we need to take a quick break. We're speaking with Dr. Adrian Grayson, Associate Dean of Educational Partnerships at Riverside City College. We're talking about extra life and health supporting services that are being offered to Inland Empire Community College students. More of our conversation in a moment. This is Education Insight. Welcome back to Education Insight. We're discussing the various new non-academic wraparound services being offered to many students in California, but none quite as much as our community college students. How well are they working? On the phone, Dr. Adrian Grayson, Associate Dean of Educational Partnerships at Riverside City College. Before the break, I asked if those basic needs centers for students here in the Inland Empire are actually having a positive effect on student academic success. Yes, I, I think they're absolutely um, having an, um, an impact there. I mean, all you have to do is just be there and to just see, um, man, just the students that come in and utilize those services and they are gaining access to more food, affordable food, right? So not everything is just, you know, here's, you know, a free meal. Sometimes it's providing them access to more affordable food um, at the college or providing them a meal plan at the college um, that they might not have had access to otherwise. It's also helping students apply for CalFresh. So that's an, um, one of the big things that these um, resource centers are doing, just helping them. Um, navigate that application process. Tell bringing, us about that. Uh, yeah, if you could yeah. describe CalFresh, that program. 
Yeah, so CalFresh um, used to be known as SNAP, um, but this is, you know, providing access to, to food. Um, you, you know, it used to be vouchers, but now it's a card um, where, where folks can um, get, um, you know, fresh food from the grocery store. Um, they allocated a certain amount of um, money per month um, for themselves and their dependents. And um, we had seen that a lot of stu- a lot of students who were um, eligible for these services did not know that, and and they weren't necessarily applying for it. And so, um, I, at Chafee, one of the big things at Chafee College, where I worked prior to working at Riverside City College, um, one of those one of the things that we were doing was bringing um, individuals, ca- county agents, onto the um, onto the college campus so that they can meet directly with students and have those individual meetings with the students and help help them navigate that process. So it wasn't only about you know what resources can the college provide, but it was also about connecting um, the students to the resources throughout the community that could help them, you know, eventually um, stay in their classes and um, and be successful. You're listening to Education Insight and our guest, Dr. Adrian Grayson from Riverside City College. Doctor, in addition to what Riverside City College and your folks are doing to meet students' basic needs, there are other things that RCC is doing to increase students' odds of success in college. What do you find most promising that's happening on that campus right now in that regard, student success? When the Student Equity and Achievement Program funds first came down um, in around 2014-15. The funds were originally allocated to student services. So the colleges approached a lot of their equity work from a student services lens. And over the years, we have learned that really it has to be more than student services. When students come to a college, they spend most of their time in the classroom, right? So I think that a lot of the most promising programs and approaches to student success uh, is really going into the classroom and figuring out how we can make our classrooms, our faculty more equity-minded, right? So one of the most promising projects at RCC um, that we have brewing right now is the Pathway Engagement Resource Course, or what we call PERC. And the great thing about it is faculty-driven, and um, it brings faculty from specific gateway courses together to discuss equity-minded practices, um, redesign syllabi, and really create that sense of belonging in the classroom, right? So when students feel like they belong, they want to stay, right? A novel idea, right? And so, <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, it's really about getting that focus in the classroom, really helping um, faculty understand what their role is and, it, and how powerful their role is in terms of even providing those wraparound services. Because I don't think that faculty always saw themselves as part of that wraparound support team. And, and they truly, truly are. Yeah. Dr. Grayson, before we close, I wanted to ask, if there were students listening right now that haven't uh, had the, uh, the energy or the courage, the oomph to tell someone at their college, university, or K-12 through that they need food or they have yeah. transportation or they need counseling. Uh, right. You work so closely with so many students that have these needs. What do you say to that student? Um, you are not alone. 
you do not have to battle through this alone. No one has ever graduated from college alone with no help. It's just not possible. Um, And now that you know this, do not hesitate to reach out when you do need that help, when you do need that support. And I encourage students to really reach out before they need help. Um, There are many programs and people at every college who are there to help you. Um, It is literally their job to help you. They get paid to do it. So don't feel like you're bothering them um, or anything. Don't feel bad about asking for help Um, or or, or don't feel like a failure. Um, or that you are a disappointment in some kind of way because you need, need this help. Um, believe me, you will be so proud um, for advocating for yourself and for standing up for yourself and for saying, for saying that quitting is not an option. You just have to keep pushing through. And there are many people on every college there to support you all the way through to the end. Well said. Dr. Adrian Grayson, the Associate Dean of Educational Partnerships at Riverside City College, We're talking today on Education Insight about wraparound support that is being offered in our local colleges and universities here in the Inland Empire. Those centers are helping students with food, housing, childcare, financial assistance, and mental health, and transportation. Dr. Grayson, thank you so much for joining us today on our program. Thank you so much for having me. Have you ever read a news story or a post on social media claiming a grade school teacher was introducing topics way too mature or way too political for grade school kids? I've seen them too. So next month, we'll dig deep into what grade school teachers can actually teach and discuss what topics require parent approval, what content might differ from one district to another, and what is always forbidden here in our region. I'm Lacey Kendall, and I hope you'll join us for that. But as we begin a new year, surely we all have hopes and dreams for what we might see in this coming year. And so do the students of the Inland Empire. We close out this show with some great elementary, middle, and high school and college students from Fontana, Riverside, Corona, Orange, and Desert Hot Springs. We asked them what they're looking forward to seeing most in 2023. We start with Presley. What I want this coming year is I wish my family to be um, happy and healthy. Hi, I'm Brandy, and the thing I'm looking forward to is um, in 2023 is graduating and moving on into the real life. My name is Elise and I'm in Riverside. I will wish for next year roller skates. Hi, my name is Jasmine and the thing that I'm looking forward most in 2023 is graduating. Hi, my name is Philip and I'm from Riverside. What I wish for 2023 is I want better grades than the last semester and I want to spend more time with my family than using my phone. Another thing is I want COVID to end in 2023. Hi, my name is Sadie, and the thing I'm looking forward to most in 2023 is starting college. This is Audrey and Corona, and this is what I want for the next year. This year, I want to spend time with my family and friends and go to Disneyland. Hi, this is Marla from Desert Hot Springs. The number one thing I would like to see for 2023 is peace and love. 
Hi, my name is Rosie, and the thing I'm looking forward to in 2023 is softball season. My name is Jugation Sudhakaran. I am six years old. This is what I want in the new year. I would like to go visit my grandparents at Sri Lanka. Hi, my name is Ashley. I'm the varsity cheer captain here at Harupa Hills High School. And the thing I'm looking forward to most in 2023 is turning 18 and being an adult. Hi, my name is Daenerys. I want peace in the world. Hi, my name is Gavin from Corona. In 2023, I wish that I get a good teacher for sixth grade because I'm going to be moving up to sixth grade next year. And I also hope that I get a good soccer coach too because next year I'm going to be starting a new soccer team and I think it'll be fun. Hi, this is Rosalie. I live in Ontario. And this is what I want for a new year. I want to have fun on the next year with my friends and family and make the world happy. Education Insight is produced in partnership with KVCR San Bernardino. Our executive producer is Jacob Poor, and our production engineer is Tyler Vizi. Alyssa Silva is our production assistant, and Lacey Kendall is your host. Support is provided by Growing Inland Achievement, working together for inland education and economic success. And by College Futures Foundation. Do you have questions or suggestions for the future topics we should be covering? Write to us at educationinsight.org. Join us again next time for Education Insight.